When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur fossils? Don't like to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! Dwayne, mm-hmm. welcome back, my friend. Welcome to you too, and uh, glad to be here. Glad oh, you yeah, could man. make it. I know it's Likewise. late back there in the east, nine o'clock just now. So I appreciate you being here. And I we uh, we were in contact with Andy Gerard earlier today too. So it looks yes, like he's going to be joining us for maybe not tonight, but for the rest of the series. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. From his vacation, so. That's really exciting news. Yeah, he might even, I mean, he said he could possibly join us tonight. You never know. Right. Yep. But um, either way, he'll be with us at some point. Um, I'm still still just passing around this live link to anybody well, that might yep. that might want might to join or, or at least come and, you know, listen to us talk. But, yes. um we are hoping for some people to drop in and and uh, contribute in the tr- in the chat. Uh, Absolutely, it's just really enlightening, really incredible in in the way that you know. Once we understand this history, we can start to really see how our world today is being affected by the same movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we laid out a nice little introduction last week. Yes, and for those who may be tuning in and and did not catch that one you can find you can find the episode on my podcast feed or the youtube uh page the odyssey page it's all there um i'm doing it live every monday night for the next 10 weeks or eight weeks now after this one but um yeah it'll be up on the feeds like the following day or two you know um but yeah Yeah, sorry go ahead no go ahead man well i released that article yesterday morning just to give people a chance to read it for themselves before we go over it here Mm -hmm. and uh i'm gonna try to do that for the for the remainder of this series there's no promises there i'm getting it out as quick as i can and um you know it's kind of there's research ongoing too so if you don't mind i wouldn't mind sharing the screen we can get we can get after it here right now hell yeah let's do it okay and uh so you can see uh, Brandeis part two scientific management. Yes, sir. Yeah. I'm going to go to full screen here. So hopefully some people have sort of dived into this and familiarized themselves with some of the names and, and people places and things. Mm-hmm. 
because all of this will come back around. We will start to see patterns in the way that Brandeis behaves. And so we promise the viewer, listener, reader that we are going to unveil to everyone uh, the creation of our social contract. And it is only just in the last month or so that we've discovered this aspect to Brandeis. We knew that he was influential, uh, powerful, uh, but we didn't realize it went this deep. So, you know, he coins the term scientific management. He's he infiltrates the Taylor Society. Okay, and we see the bottom three guys there on the left. Mm-hmm. That's Gant, Galbraith, and and Taylor himself on the far left. And these guys are creating um, technology, and together they all form this Taylor Society. But Brandeis, as we will see, is the hub of all of it. He infiltrates their group and um, controls it. So, so was it a was it kind of a pure, you know, uh, positive force before Brandeis comes in? Or so, was it just Yes, that's a we're gonna get question, into that. Andy, that is a great question because what we start to see is there's uh, degrees to to which they all agree on the means they all kind of agree on the ends and what it should look like but how they get there is uh, highly contested and you know taylor dies not long after he publishes his his uh principles of scientific management brandeis becomes the face of it mm-hmm. uh and same with robert grosvenor valentine who was really the founder of industrial relations they both pass away really shortly after they you know gift the world this technology so mm-hmm. uh from initial readings i'm seeing that both taylor and grosvenor valentine were looking at trying to honestly create a, an agreement between the worker and the employee that the employee would accept now this is obviously you know brandeis is a central hub but there's a hundred people here involved i mean the efficiency movement itself is massive it's an aspect Mm -hmm. of the progressive movement itself so this is all under the guise of efficiency okay and so and and efficiency preparedness these are two words that we are hearing today even okay so in order to tell this story andy we have to talk about the national consumers league first so Wilson found the judicial outlook of Louis Brandeis, a Harvard Law School professor, highly congenial. Brandeis was the author of the historic Brandeis Brief, which ushered in a whole new phase of constitutional law based more on sociological than legal interpretation. So we're stepping away from legal interpretation and starting to insert uh, sociology, social science mm. Uh, facts and statistics in in determining cases in u.s law pushing more towards like an open interpretation of law right yeah they call it a living law and for it for it to for democracy to be successful in their minds they needed a living law to go along with a living changing society right uh this is why the u.s constitution was directly opposed to everything that they did and this is why they to, to a man in all of their writings, consider the 
constitution of the United States, the greatest obstacle in the world to their plan. Makes because sense. America was one of the only only countries with a constitution. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because, like, I think there's an attractiveness to the idea of a living law and the way that we do of uh, uh, progress and change over time. And, you know, that's valid. But um, at the same time, I think there's there are core well i mean we we don't, we're not going to get into natural law and all that but you know there are core tenets that i think our declaration of independence and things like that the constitution kind of uh embody that mm. go far beyond uh, a single nation or a single time period and i think that's why it's so abhorrent to these controllers and the people that wish to control society because they are timeless natural laws almost yeah and we do get into natural law right in the conclusion okay great perfect and that's really where we bring it home to because this is all opposed to nature the entire new world order movement is a is opposed to nature including human nature it's the core it's the absolute yeah, exactly. core and it's the connecting piece from every subtopic in this entire of, thing yeah and a lot of these guys are botanists they have phds in botany so they're studying plants and nature to determine how to best maneuver society this and really exploit yeah this is where genetics comes from and mendel and the peas and several other situations you know these guys like uh roscoe pound mm -hmm. he's a botanist first right so just the brandeis <laughs> sorry just a total sidetrack maybe think of terence mckenna mr botanist ethno botanist so there yeah. you go that's that's yeah. like the newer version of it all for right. certain because they are they are still searching through nature for the magic mushroom or you know the answer to uh enlightenment or you know as the cia looked at the mushroom as a truth serum mm -hmm. or one of those things so a way to control yet again and manipulate yeah, yeah. You know? it's all about that so the brandeis yeah. brief if nobody's heard about it it was submitted to judge brewer during the landmark 1908 supreme court case muller versus oregon this is one of the most famous landmark cases and in fact a lot of the brandeis's cases are considered today total landmarks so the court was considering the constitutionality of limiting women's working hours brandeis hired by the national consumers league to counsel in behalf of the state of oregon so brandeis and frankfurt are both counseling on behalf of the government hmm. So Brandeis was hired personally by two of its most influential leaders, the NCL's chairman of publications, Josephine Goldmark, and its founder, uh, Florence Kelly. Josephine happens to be the sister of Brandeis's wife, Alice, which under normal circumstances makes her his sister-in-law, except Alice, Josephine, and Louis were all second cousins. So this kind of goes into what we were talking about earlier today, some of the new findings you know, about Frankism and, you know, yeah. questionable familial situations with Brandeis is starting with his wife, who's actually a second cousin. <laughs> and that also speaks to, you know, how families like the Darwins and, and um, those families, they intermarry just like, uh, you know, the nobility does. So we see that there's a connection here, like an old world sort of way of, of approaching um, life mm -hmm. by interbreeding between uh, two or three families. Absolutely. 
And this is so something the, that I see all the way back. Yeah, exactly. And these are the the original eugenicists, the ones that want to intermarry and breed between one or two families. So you can see mm -hmm. that, you know, in the end, it's not going to turn out well. All right. So the National Consumers League was founded in 1899 by Jane Addams and Florence Kelly and Josephine Lowell as a social reform movement concerned with conditions under which goods were manufactured and distributed. The League promoted the creation of administrative agencies to enforce protective legislation and played a major role in defending reform measures in court. So hmm. they're behind Brandeis. They're doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes work and the creation of the, the Brandeis brief itself is largely put together by Josephine Goldmark. These are women of the suffragette movement, very influential mm. women. Okay, so Brandeis famously introduced the court to the courtroom and as of yet never before seen technique in arguing case law, giving birth to a revolutionary no, new sociological jurisprudence covered in more depth in a later two-part article we've already talked about, Brandeis mm -hmm. part six. So and so simply put, it was the combining of sociology and what they call sociology, the science of social order and progress with There's law, that word, which they call the most specialized engine of social control. So here's the insertion of the scientific expert into U.S. law. We're talking about uh, the rise of the expert. Well, they had to go yep. into every aspect of our life and the administrative state that Brandeis helps create that we talked about in part one is is the foundations. And now they're starting to to uh accent it with other systems of control and you know what is what is uh more influential in the control of society than law right That's, this is why they call it the most specialized engine of social control and these are the sociologists that are working with roscoe pound out of the university of nebraska that we will get into this is so, fascinating that's like yeah. pretty much the origin right there of the expert yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brandeis is the guy. You know, this idea of the expert goes way back, right? I mean, mm. Romans had experts and they had their own versions of people that they figured knew best. Oh, yeah. We have the adepts, you know? Version. Absolutely. This is the new, uh, it's like the secret societies. Those who were even allowed to read were the religious oligarchs yeah. and the, the adepts. So, yeah. So the law, an underappreciated aspect of the social control of society, despite it being the most obvious, having already spoken of Brandeis's influence on Wilson and the executive branch of the U.S. government in Brandeis Part 1, we now tell of the events that led to Brandeis's transformation of the judicial and legislative branches, right? So wow. he's, he's, that's, there's only three branches, and he's, yeah. he's infiltrating all three. So it's a top-down situation. And so he's, you know, he's in the ear of wilson mm -hmm. you know affecting the executive branch just it's total actual radical reformation it's you know it's straight out of the prussian reformation and, and but it's that. also clandestine sure because yeah the whole thing is done secretly because even 100 years later we're surprised to know that a supreme court justice created israel or right. was the architect of the new freedom or was the coiner of the term scientific management you know, he's an incredible figure. And he really is. If you're ever looking for what they're hiding behind the gates. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What's hiding behind the gates? <laughs> Progressive movement. 
They don't want you knowing about the American progressive movement still going on today. They are still building back better right now under Biden. And Clinton was, Hillary Clinton was a progressive too. You look at the logo with the H and the arrow from left mm-hmm. to right. That's what that means. Yeah, so you cut out, you cut out, bo- you cut right? out right after um, oh. you said what, you know, what's hiding behind the gates. Boom. You got cut off and uh, it caught up. And you're t- yeah, dude, it was like perfect timing, but I think everyone heard it once you caught up it. Uh, you know, you mentioned the progressive movement itself. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. Are, the gates are being kept. Absolutely. No one talks about the progressive movement. We talk about no. communism all yeah. the time, but we and, don't really talk about the roots of this. Yeah. And I would say that the, the primary figure that they're trying to hide is this guy. You know, I thought Lippman, his, his fellow House of Truth member there, was influential in being the founder of modern journalism. But this right. guy takes the cake. Yeah, well, I mean... It, this is all this is uncovering a whole nother side to the situation you know you we see now how these two characters walter Lippmann and louis brandeis work together in tandem so well as you know from the house of truth yeah well walter Lippmann uh provides the philosophy mm. right the great society the industrial uh democracy right and well actually Lippmann provides the philosophy through the great society and, and the Fabians, Sidney Webb provides the same sort of view through their book, the industrial democracy, but Brandeis is, is using the term industrial democracy throughout all of this. I haven't seen him use uh, Lippmann's term, although they're the same thing. They mean the same thing sort of, you know, there's, they're going to be a, a slight different variation of each other. We talked about this earlier about the the means and the ends, but the ends is the same. They still want a, a society governed by the technical scientific expert. It's just mm-hmm. whether how they want to get there is what they really differ on. Wow. So the meeting at Brandeis's Boston home between he and the founders of the NCL marks the beginning of a legislative altering relationship that would last at least another decade. Once Brandeis was confirmed as a justice of the Supreme Court, his responsibilities as legal counsel to the NCL were taken over by his young protege, Felix Frankfurter. Now, there's a lot with Frankfurter, too, but we're going to just keep moving because we do eventually get there. So Josephine Goldmark describes the nascent moments of the Brandeis brief. And I've got a picture there overlooking the Charles River from the Brandeis home. On November 14th, 1907, Florence Kelly and I were actors in a little scene, which, though of course we did not realize it then, marked a turning point in American social and legal history. We had come to Boston to see my brother-in-law. <laughs> it doesn't say second cousin. Louis no, it does Peter not. <laughs> then a practicing attorney in Boston, and we sat in the back library of his home on a little street called Otis Place. We had come to ask Mr. Brandeis to appear in the Supreme Court of the United States to defend the Oregon 10-hour law for women, attacked as unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. Brandeis looked thoughtfully out over the Charles River and accepted. Thus began a collaboration between Mr. Brandeis and the Consumers League, which gave a revolutionary new direction to judicial thinking, indeed the judicial process itself. What is the 10-hour law for women? Well, it was, they wanted to, it started from a, a laundry company and the guy was asking women there to work longer than 10 hours. And so oh, okay. in this progressive social um, 
reform environment that was going on in the early 1900s. They were taking all of these little instances and using them to create circumstances of which they could change legislation. Now, mm -hmm. that, that was the one major thing that they knew that, I mean, this was the purpose of the NCL was uh, legislative change. Okay, so they're affecting the legislative branch of, of the American government when we're doing Interesting. that. Because, of course, he looks like a total hero for doing something, yes. for championing something like this. And this right. is a theme we run into constantly with this situation where they're hiding behind little acts of valor, which in turn kind of, are we kind of talking about like a slippery slope? Is that mm. what we're talking about here? Or is it? I'm just trying to... And it's okay. also in the, the way that they um, they framed the conversation. It actually, over time, uh, did harm to the women's liberation movement at the time. That's okay. Because that's of the way that it was presenting them. And, you know, we see the same things happening here today. Right. Uh, oh yeah they love hiding behind vulnerable groups of people acting as their champions and then ruining them in the long run yes I, I don't think that the blm movement in the long run is a good thing for the for the black population no. of america right it's absolutely not no and well unless you're talking about the the people running black lives matter who have like six houses now right. and <laughs> millions of dollars and right. stock socialist. options the right the socialists movement. That aren't supposed yeah. to own anything right the practicing socialists the, right. yeah <laughs> unreal so she she continues he brandeis then outlined what he would need for a brief namely facts published by anyone with expert knowledge of industry in its relation to women's hours of labor such as factory inspectors physicians trade unions economists social workers if I could return to Boston within a fortnight with such printed matter sufficiently authoritative to pass muster, we would then work up the materials in the form of a brief. <laughs> so Josephine Goldmark's work as a reformer in the progressive era did much to redesign the American social contract. Now, I believe that's the Jewish women's um, library or archive. <laughs> it says that the Jewish women's archive, Josephine Goldmark, there's a, a link at the bottom if you want to go read that article yourself but i found Excellent. that quite fascinating that they are also stating the same things that we are that she's a major influence on creating our modern american social contract right so the brandeis brief set the method of argument for other landmark minimum hour cases in 1909 1912 and 1914 as well as minimum wage cases in 1913 and 1914 Brandeis was assisted greatly in the collection of material by Josephine Goldmark and the NCL and the entire scheme heavily funded by Dorothy Wayne, uh, Dorothy Payne Whitney, the Russell Sage Foundation and the Fabian Society. Huh. A series of groundbreaking cases in which Brandeis was counsel, one by way of scientific expert opinion, set the foundation for a new scientific philosophy of law for the 20th century. Wow. So you can see how they're using landmark cases. This is really the Bernaysian uh, way of creating circumstances yeah now, and there's some major things going on at this time too the the triangle shirtwaist fire um uh, you know the ludlow massacres in 1914 the homestead strike in 1892 you know there's this is what, what they called the labor wars i mean 
the workers were not uh, going into the factories willingly. They were literally uh, drawing arms. And, right. you know, there's famous stories of the Rockefellers with um, the National, what are they called? The National Guard. They bring in the National Guard into Ludlow, Colorado and 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 shoot at the workers, their wives and their kids, killing a bunch of people. So I think oh we talked about that on another yeah. episode. But, you know, there's a lot now. of these things going on. I mean, they what they're doing is they're they're especially the mining industries they're they're starting to gather all of the necessary metals non-ferrous ferrous metals that are going to be needed to create war material and ships and so they're trying to make these uh, workers in these newly discovered mines you know work as long as they can in dangerous safe or dangerous conditions and the workers are revolting on mass and so in one of these cases they just under uh like they they pointed guns at them and threw them on a train and shipped them to mexico and dropped them off in the middle of nowhere now these are true stories of what was happening with labor when they were they were balking at the idea of being scientifically managed mm -hmm. so today you know we wake to the alarm clock and it's largely normalized but there were wars fought over this so the uh consisting of over 100 pages of sociological data, Brandeis's brief devoted only two pages to legal argument, largely due to the efforts of Brandeis working with Goldmark Kelly and the National Consumers League at the height of the progressive era. We see the pioneering moments of arguing in this U.S. case law using facts and statistics, two things susceptible to a wide array of subjective opinion. Boom. That's the heart of it right there. Yeah. Just creating subjectivity. Right. The last thing they want is any form of objectivity. So by shout out, law, shout right. out to all the people watching, by the way, we got 10 people watching right awesome. now. Hey, everybody. Cool. Thank you Everybody's, for being here. Yeah. Thank you. And if there's any questions anybody has along the way, feel free to just to ask. We'll, we'll yeah. Deal with it. Throw it in the chat, please. Um, what up, so, Dana? Thanks for being here. So by getting law to change with a progressive society they created a new living law steered by social science research data turning the feedback loop into a social reform perpetual motion machine this shaping of society using critical observation first and then applied scientific experimentation after the primary method of meaning and meaning of social sciences from its inception this is really why social sciences are brought to america because they can now study society and then input information that they learned from that to better steer society after that, and then to be able to steer it in the directions that it wanted. So we, you know, we're going all the way back to our future perfect episodes. Yes, cybernetic and government. Um, and again, for people who have not watched or listened to those episodes, or gone to bulletproofpub.com and, and checked out those amazing articles the future perfect part one and two uh that's kind of when Dwayne and i first started getting into contact when you were writing those yep that was and very they kind important. of lay down the foundation too of of this knowing those will help you understand all of this yeah absolutely and you know it's not super complicated it is kind of complicated to first grasp it but once you do you really just see it everywhere it's one it's like one of those 3d movies or those those 3d uh, pictures that we used to get in the 90s 
Maybe I'm speaking yeah. for your time. No, you where, can't see it until you stare at it for a yeah, while. And really suddenly, hey, it's a schooner. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is it's that's what it's like, right? And that's coming from the guy that just kind of went through it and is learning on the way on the fly right now mm -hmm. today, learning even more. Hell yeah, man! Yeah, from you too. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll shout that out to the the listeners and the viewers too. That you know, if you haven't seen him, whether you uh, you know appreciate some of his other crazier work or not, like the work that Robert Sepper is doing on some of these similar areas of uh, of interest, uh, he put out a very interesting video just the other day. So yeah, go check that out. And he's trying to open the gates of hell, he says, with the next one. So I think right. we're doing something similar with this series right here. I do think so. I do. <laughs> so here's another key phrase I took out of uh, one of the books here that uh, Miss Goldmark states that the Brandeis brief in the Mueller case reprinted together with Judge Brewer's opinion was in great demand from law schools and universities as well as from labor unions and libraries. Gone was the deadening weight of legal precedent. Wow. That should be on a t-shirt. Yeah. So they, they get rid of legal precedent and, and replace it really with the sociological precedent mm -hmm. because they had to still use the things that Brandeis uh, put into law as precedent later, but they just replaced sort of the legal uh, argument for precedent. So judge Brewer stating in his final assessment before examining the constitutional question, to notice the course of legislation as well as expressions of opinions from other than judicial sources. The brief filed by Mr. Louis D. Brandeis is a, various co a very copious collection of these matters, but in regards to the facts found within the brief, Brewer admitted may not be technically speaking authorities, and in them there is little or no discussion of the constitutional question. So there he is on record, I think, on purpose, making sure that that lived, you know, sort of past him. Uh, and again, we can get into, <clears throat> you know, how much he was behind it or how much he was involved with these people. I don't know. But in the end, it was passed and it became a landmark case. Wow, that's incredible. So they call it the new precedent. And this is where the judge himself becomes witness to the settling of law through copious collections of facts and statistics. Brewer noting that they were not technically speaking authorities in themselves, adding for the record that there was little or no discussion to the negative effect the attorney's radical math method might have on the U.S. Constitution. Hmm. And according to David Bernstein, law professor at George Mason University School of Law, much of the information found in the brief was of dubious nature, calling the collection of facts nonsensical and miscellany and hardly <laughs> definitive. Owen Fiss, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Law, Yale University and author of The Troubled Beginnings of the Modern State wrote in 1993 that it was a hodgepodge. Huh. So these are guys that are writing dissertations that are, you know, established uh, people, man, uh, parts of the management class. And, and, you know, this is where you can find a lot of critical evaluation of Brandeis in these dissertations in, in the upper levels of uh ivy league um usually masters of liberal arts degrees or bachelor mm -hmm. of arts degrees but usually the real true history is is left for the liberal artists 
and you'll see throughout all of this that the liberal artists are the ones really in control and take a look around today and see it's uh, the liberal ar artists are still in the same place whenever you see an ma or a ba beside their name that's what that means and it's really the basis of all human knowledge that they're learning well, yeah, and as we've talked about on this show before with you, you know, this is uh, utilizing the trivium method in a way. It's it's all connected to that ancient philosophy of understanding things from multiple perspectives and becoming the expert, becoming your own expert. So while they hand us themselves as the experts, it's it's not a lie. They have become experts, but they're again they're scientifically managing our lives in the way that they see fit. It's not true expertise, which is all of us are the expert. Um, and it's like we've talked about before. The even the pursuit of liberal arts in in colleges and universities is uh, not is not a, a respected path. It's a yeah. uh, you can't totally. figure it out. So just do yeah. this until you get enough credits. You know, yeah. liberal arts major. Where these people would take it very seriously as the formidable way to become an adult. Yep, these are the most civilized scholarly well-balanced intelligent i mean they reserve this for the child proteges right if it wasn't for the nepotism and the narcissism they'd be fucking yeah. brilliant leaders but they're psychopathic yeah. instead yep and so i just reiterate here the gold mark she was writing fatigue and efficiency that's the book we see in the background there and that's sponsored by russell sage mm -hmm. okay uh, dorothy payne whitney here i mentioned again she's the uh, wife of J.P. Morgan financer Willard Strait, and they paid in full all the cost of printing all the briefs dating back to the very first, the Brandeis brief in 1908, which we just talked about. So what all is those art cases and a ton of other things? Those groups are funding the the publishing, creation, all of that. They're they're pouring money in. Before so we. Before we scroll up too far, I don't want to. I just want to throw this in here. What this symbol, this Russell Sage Foundation yeah. symbol. We were um, looking at this last night, dude. The two pillars, and I know my boy. Like shout out to New York Patriot. If <laughs> he's probably not watching, but somebody, somebody tell him about this because I don't know about you, but I'm seeing little bees. Yep. Am I yep. seeing a hornet's nest? No, because this bees? is extremely esoteric. There are bees on a honeycomb, dude. Yeah, dude. Whew. I mean, I'm sure people could tear this whole image apart a lot further than what I'm saying. But we've got stars, specifically yep. eight stars yep. or nine stars. Yep. I don't know. Yeah, there's Lots so of much symbology there. Yeah, a lot of symbology, but the yeah, yep. the bees really stuck out to me. Yeah. Uh, and it wraps into so much... Uh, metaphor about these the, the same things we're mind. talking about this hive exactly what i was the hive mind mentality look at what it uh, says around really the circle improvement of social and living conditions for the for, for the improvement of social, of social. living conditions russell sage foundation that is exactly mm. what they're doing and there is a secret society that's really based their logo is based on the b it's not coming to me now but i know that there is yeah, they're absolutely. I think that that's yes. what they're saying. Well, this they're is also it gets all the way back into hermeticism. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Totally. We're going. We go deep into history with all of this. These, all of these people are, you know, they all go back way into history through familial connections. Absolutely. 
to oh, yeah. times where they only have paintings of people. You know what I mean? Like 100, 200, <laughs> and, 300 years ago. And interesting stories. Yeah. And absolutely. they all, all born out of, you know, going to the same schools mm -hmm. and all progressive. Even before there was a progressive era, these are progressive, radical, liberalist, you know. So, yeah, that yep. is a very interesting logo. That's why I wanted to put it there. <clears throat> and I didn't even really notice until last night that it was a bunch of bees and my wife and I were sitting here putting it together. And it's <laughs> it's a very interesting, I mean, it, it tells you a lot. And this would be like a Sopian language or like you say, the esoteric sort of angle, the unspoken language yeah. that is going on that most won't understand, but many, uh, especially the initiated do. <clears throat> and shout out to Andy Gerard, who is tuning in. He can't join us right now, but he's tuning in. So that's good to hear. It's cool, good cool. to see. What's up, buddy? Yeah. Um, Andy does great work. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, his Go Within to Get Out channel on YouTube, yeah. I believe. Um, yeah, yep. he's he's got a great channel over there. He does a lot of uh, does a lot of activism in our direction. You know, he's out there in the streets, you know, hasn't had to do it in a yeah. while, hopefully, but yeah, yeah, he'll be on this, this series. Um, probably the next episode. Yeah. We're really looking forward to his opinion and all of this. Absolutely. So just want everybody to re remember here about the relationship with Whitney and straight and JP Morgan, and they founded the new Republic. And this new, is new, Brandeis, new, Littman, new. Crowley and Frankfurter again. And then so other progressive magazines were American Magazine, Collier's, Cosmopolitan, McClure's, Muncie's, and The Independent. Those are very well known, but they're all progressives. And so uh, these magazines sold for 10 or 15 cents a copy instead of the 25 or 35 cents charged by the older magazines. So you can see that they're they're trying to placate to the to the poor and needy or to the less affluent and yeah they're all in on this plan together we see it again at the paris peace conference after this to to instill the institute or the international rule of law uh, really it's progressive era writ large in in paris so first we see it done domestically in wilson's first term and then internationally creating you know the american century after that's that. so crazy i'm seeing that all the time these days like whenever like, i i just heard something about tax returns this year something about some big check that the government's considering giving out to anyone with a kid and i'm like yeah that would help me but at the same time like ugh, this is just getting closer and closer to like some sort of universal basic income yeah. sort of yeah. situation just yeah, selling it to us like ain't the government nasty like don't yep. you want free money from the government it's just this whole slippery fucking slope yeah and really statism is a religion yeah, especially when ways, so many people right? depend on it for real actual tangible um survival yeah you know it's yep. so awful but anyway yeah. I digress. And that's well, the that's Taylor. the welfare state. That's the yeah, welfare exactly. State. We, get, we get into the creation of it too. And Grandise is there. So the heroes, right? <laughs> yeah, here's a quote from Scientific Management. Uh, oh, this is Louis Brandeis Scientific Management and the Railroads. So this is Louis Brandeis' own words. 
Scientific management demands preparedness. The results attained through scientific management depend on universal preparedness. The same preparedness is invoked for industry, which is secured to Prussia in her victory over France. Now that basically confirms everything that we've been saying, that a lot of this technology, a lot of the ideas are coming from Prussia, straight out of the Prussian Reformation of 1806 to 1812. The answer to the to the loss to Napoleon, right? So this goes wow. legitimately way back. <clears throat> this is so nuts. And as we go on, you'll see that everybody uh, studies in Prussia first. Like we, mm-hmm. we talked about Louis Brandeis' childhood. He goes there and does his two years of uh, study as a kid still, whereas most guys go post-grad, they'll either graduate Harvard or Yale or one of these places. And then they get shipped off to Leipzig, Göttingen, or one of these uh, Prussian German universities to learn specific um, knowledge that isn't actually provided at American universities. It's mm-hmm. just it, at that point now where it's burgeoning, these are the men that bring it to America but they have to get their PhDs first at Leipzig. And this is where sociology comes from too. This is the founding of sociology, uh, psychology, psychiatry, philosophy. You know, basically our entire society comes from, from this Prussian reformation of a, you know, and what it is, is the scientifically governed society. It's funny how little. And it's the efficient preparedness movement. It really is. Yeah. And it's funny how it all stems from Prussia and Prussia is one of the least uh, kind of like popularly publicly talked about areas and cultures in in modern history Um, and what they represent and what they were and what they became. And um, just one quick interesting point. I think I've told you this before. I've talked to you about this, how um, a group that is in like completely intertwined and labeled as Nazi and is tied to the, um, the third Reich, which is the Thule society, T H U L E. Uh, that society existed since 1806 and way, way, way before the third Reich or any sort of principles related to the third Reich. And, What's interesting is that it was constantly being snuffed out and destroyed by Prussians, by the Prussian Mm. forces. Um, I don't know much about it, and I want to learn more because the Thule, quote-unquote, society was like the 107th name that this group had because it kept having to go underground. Hmm because of Prussian forces destroying it over and over and disbanding it. So, and we know that of course, in the, the, the light of world war two and the public perception of it, um, the only real information we have about the Thule society is related to occult magic and, and, you know, the superior white Aryan race and all that kind of crazies talk. But uh, the, the connections are very curious when we get Mm. into, well, gee, where was it people trying to figure out their own, their own histories? Was it more so something like that? Cause that's what it starts to look like more than anything else. Yeah, um, not it, trying to sympathize with Hitler or Himmler or any of that mm-hmm. shit, you know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, 
1806 is the year that uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte addresses the German nation. And this is how about the that year that they really start to establish the idea of efficiency and preparedness. Uh, the education system gets created there where they snuff out fr uh, free will in the soil before the student or before the plant even sees the sunshine. Mm -hmm. And and so we, it's a well-documented historical fact that that education system was borrowed and brought over with My very goodness. little variation by the founders right. of American education kind of makes Grant, Grant, Granville Stanley Hall you know names Everett Edward Everett these are huge names in in the creation of American education kind of makes Operation Paperclip look like part two right <laughs> and this is that's a great point because that mm -hmm. is exactly what we're seeing it's the same as the executive committee that we talked about that brought over the the scholars in aid on you know, it, that were in Germany fleeing the Nazi regime, same as the Exiliterator. Right. So, it's unreal. Uh, Peter Jennings, people can find it on YouTube. And they did a series on the ABC News, and it was called The Century. And in one of those episodes, they, they said, and I quote it here, what many argue today is the most important ism of the 20th century. And that was Taylorism. Mm-hmm. So Taylorism through efficiency and preparedness, it really infiltrates every aspect of our lives, the scientific management. Uh, we can see the, the middle manager, micromanagement, all these kind of terms comes out of this. Yeah, tailored, like literally the word yeah. tailored. Yeah, tailored lives. It's known today as Taylorism. Nobody says the principles of scientific management. It's, it's just generally known as Taylorism and it's, you know, Anybody in that field um, recognizes Taylor as a major founder. So Taylor's major contribution towards our present day industrial democracy largely goes unnoticed by a distant, disinterested public until now. Taylorism as it is known today was a revolutionary new approach to workshop efficiency. Taylorism driving the efficiency movement that introduced to the world entirely new concepts like organized labor, mm. industrial management, industrial relations, and scientific management. So these guys also start to create organized labor, which we get into too. This and, keeps and reminding me of, uh, have you ever heard of the, well, I'm sure you have, you've heard of the company town, right? That concept. Yeah. yeah. yeah this reminds yeah. me of some of that and what a failure that was too. Right, it's kind of the micromanaged future we see developing. And in, here in BC, we have all kinds of ghost towns, just like really, that. yeah. Jesus. You can go there today and walk. There's like one curator or whatever that takes care of it, but it's just a ghost town. It's like '70s houses. Wow. <laughs> so the other thing about organized labor is that this is the scientific expert getting between man and labor. Right now, think about organized labor that way. Right. It's and and they said strength in numbers to get us there. This is how they got the worker to uh, accept these measures was to introduce organized labor and labor leaders. But what they really are are a go between and right. a go between Liaisons. between you and what your most precious property, really, your own right. labor. 
Okay. So this was an eye opener for me too. And in how they were looking at labor unions and why they were introduced and why they were so infatuated with gaining control over labor. You know, James T. Shotwell is the founder or a member of the inquiry I was just writing about today. He founds the international labor organization. Oh my God. And it's, it's worked in with the, the league of nations and, and they have aligning constitutions and oh, Jesus. talks about how the U S constitution was the major obstacle again. <clears throat> Unbelievable. Yeah. That theme keeps popping up over and over again, which yeah. is weird because it's like, uh, it's a whole nother thread. I won't even go down there. <laughs> okay. So by the election of 1912, this is the key election year. This is the year that everything changed in the United States. And it's probably the most famous election year of all time. Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, and William Howard Taft, they're all basically progressives. So Americans really didn't have any choice. The progressive era was so popular, so so well-known then that the only way was through having at, you know, at least some progressive measures in your political platform. Mm -hmm. So wow. Brandeis counted some of the nation's leading engineers, such as Frederick Taylor, Henry Gant, Harrington Emerson, and F. Lincoln Hutchins among his most trusted advisors. So we see here through uh, Louis Brandeis, the making of regulated competition by Burke, that he is infiltrating this group of uh, men that possess technology that he wants to manipulate. So Brandeis took a very hands-on approach, marshalling publicity by exploiting his many very influential contacts within the political circles and press clubs of New York, Boston, and Washington. Brandeis organizing the meetings with the leaders of the newly formed Taylor Society, writing out the method of argument for everyone to follow, coordinating, collecting, and coaching witnesses. Here again, we see Brandeis gaining influence over a group of important people possessing important technology. So wow. he's together, they are creating the entire scientific management argument to overcome a lot of these labor issues. And yeah, so they're literally the putting meetings, everything in place to secure this system. Say that again. They're just like putting every little piece in place to secure yeah. this system. Like, yeah. and you can totally see that they airtight. had to do it domestically to make America uh, fit with the international structure and framework that they were going to create in 1919. They know right. all of this. They knew they were going to war in 1914. And, you know, this is all planned. The efficiency and preparedness movement is, is to create a, a military, a strong military that, that deters people from attacking you just by its sheer size. And so this was the idea that Roosevelt first talked about in, in his bull moose uh, campaign. And that's really the first progressive platform. If, if you look it up and you search, what was the first progressive platform? Theodore Roosevelt shows up and it's right. the bull moose party. So again, here we are in a very obscure, obscure area of history in which people kind of know a little bit, right. But they don't know. And, and in many ways people laud Roosevelt. He's a, an American hero. Mm -hmm. You know, his individuality, his rugged individualism really turns on a lot of Americans. And oh, God, yeah. One of the I things I will that. say about the Roosevelt fans out there is that they had to actually drop Roosevelt and go to Wilson because Roosevelt wasn't willing to experiment on the U.S. Constitution. I have that in writing. You know, these are what this these guys are saying. And I find that very 
Very important. Say it again that Roosevelt was not willing. Yeah, Roosevelt. The reason why, because there's a total uh, volte face, a total uh, change of opinion there by Wilson, and and historians are conflicted by it to this day as to why he flipped. He was uh, at one moment, you know, um, anti-interventionalist. He was a pacifist. He didn't want to go to war. And within four months of being elected to his second term, they were in war. So you can right. see they had to push into this. Uh, they had to get involved into this war to create the necessary dialectics to, to create a peace conference. And they talk about this peace conference. I mean, uh, Theodore Herzl talks about this peace conference of, of Paris in the 1800s, in the 1890s, that in, in order for them to have a Jewish homeland, they really had to create a global event uh organized around creation of an international global authority this is marx talks about this at the first internationals in mid 1800s and there you know this you can see a direct path between uh marx in the 18 mid 1800s through the first and second internationals all the way up through geneva conventions and the hague conventions and Roosevelt in 1907 recommends that Americans are involved in there. And these are really the burgeoning first baby steps of American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And Woodrow Wilson, when he steps onto French soil to go to the Paris Peace Conference, that's the first time an American president stepped on foreign soil. So we can see the real, the, the founding of American foreign policy here. Mm. And that's way off on a tangent. So that's okay. It's relevant information. Back to scientific <laughs> matters, but it's just, it's that is how uh, insidious this is. This is how developed of a network they create. Right. So in October, Brandeis met at Gantt's apartment in New York with Frank Gilbreth, Jim Dodge, and others. So other management pioneers, such as Henry Gantt, known for his Gantt chart, and Frank Gilbreth, known for his motion studies. Morris Llewellyn Cook for rural electrification, Carl George Barth for his speed and feed compound slide rule, all collaborated with Brandeis in bringing scientific management to life. Brandeis even writing the foreword to Gilbert's primer of scientific management in 1914. They would famously combine Gilbert's motion studies with Taylor's time studies, forming an entirely new discipline, time motion study. This collection of men, early pioneers of the cybernetic, eugenic, and later technocracy movements man it's all connected <laughs> it's all connected yeah and so taylor to brandeis in in a letter here please let me congratulate you most warmly upon the masterly way in which you marshaled your forces and presented your testimony and also upon the publicity which your testimony has received and the interest by the papers all over the country this is the birth <laughs> of scientific management and Brandeis, both of them really. I mean, Brandeis to this point was known as the people's attorney, but this really supplants him. Mm -hmm. uh, there's 20 other uh, attorneys involved in all of this. He, he just naturally rises to the top and takes control of it all. Interesting. Uh, so the large stumbling block was presented to the labor unions and agreement the workers would accept nearly to a man labor revolted at the thought of being scientifically micromanaged labor was ready okay so here's a, a great quote here to wrap your head around this labor was readily able to understand and agree with brandeis that employers would without involving large capital expenditure gain greater productivity from labor 
reduced labor costs, more efficient use of plant and equipment, uh, lower interests and taxes, less depreciation charges, reduced stock of raw and processed materials, and lessened strain on credit. However, they could not understand or agree with Brandeis as to what employees would gain from scientific <laughs> management. So he's just saying, yeah, I can see all the ways that a corporation is going to benefit from this and lowered labor costs and all of these things. But exactly where is it that the employers are going to benefit from that or the employees are going to benefit? And still to this day, we can see there's no shared, uh, you know, employees and employers don't really share in profit or or, or leisure, you know, the workers still to this day, a hundred years later is really pushed to the maximum. And, and, you know, this ideal noble lie that they created that if, if you participate with us and get it involved in this partnership, uh, you will share in the profit and accumulate more leisure time. Now, this is really where Robert Governor Valentine and Taylor wanted was a 50% cooperative. And so that kind of sort of, you know, conflicts with the way the Brandeis and his guys wanted to go. So I'm not mm -hmm. saying that they were murdered to get him out of the way, <laughs> you know, but I'm but seeing some pretty interesting things worked things out for Brandeis. They did. <laughs> and you know, that quote you just read was really like, if anyone's just looking for a, a quote that really encapsulates the idea that our, the future we have been building and the future our parents and our grandparents have been unknowingly building isn't really a future at all. It's more of just a machine. We've yep. literally just been helping create a massive machine in some way or another. You look at this scientific management process that has clearly, um, this isn't just some pipe dream we're reading about here. This is literally the current world we are literally walking into or being yep. walked into right as we speak over the last few years and into the next couple. Well, I would say that we can trace the World Economic Forum's motivations and goals all the way back to this. And absolutely, further back especially the people, this. the specific people involved. I mean, we oh. have Klaus Schwab's father right off the bat is involved with the Nazis right. directly in and a very is, profound way. Yep. And there is so much of that. Yeah. The, and these that's guys' father totally are involved. Brandeis' father, we talked about in part one. He shows up in America as a mm -hmm. scout with a house of Rothschild agent riding shotgun. Right. So there's it's always been the nepotism angle. Yep. And so, in studying the resistance of organized labor to scientific management, Valentine came to see that the objection lay not so much in the thing itself as in the fact that it was introduced by the employer and for his own advantage. Mm. So Valentine is the founder of industrial relations. It's his plan that everybody goes with. He has the idea that, hey, make it more of a 50-50 thing and accent the advantages that you want to have for the employer we want it to be a mutually uh, beneficial relationship. And so that obviously doesn't go with the greater, grander sort of scheme here. Right. When we go back into history like we are, right. we know that this is about social control of the individual. So you can see where they had to be either moved out of the way 
or brought into the fold. And, you know, this is where we get into subjectivity. Who knows, really? All I know is that Robert Gorvner Valentine died at the dinner room table of Delmonico's in New York. And Felix Frankfurter was right across the table from him. And they tried to rush him to the hospital, but he died. Uh, Jesus. You know, so, and, you know, I think I've said this before that Frankfurter basically took over being after Valentine passed away. He was the spokesperson for the family. Oh, how convenient. So the substitute of machinery for unaided human labor was the great industrial achievement of the 19th century. The new achievement to which Dr. Taylor points the way consists in elevating human labor itself to a higher plane of efficiency and of earning power. Henry R. Town is one of these guys in the Taylor Society. He's a president of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. And that, I think it was before they created, I think that's where they, from, from where the Taylor Society comes from is this American Society of, of Mechanical Engineers. Oh, okay. So that's him writing in Shop Management 1910. So what they do, and this is Brandeis's idea, is they create this protocol of peace. Interesting use of the word protocol here. <laughs> okay. Yep. Just like the covenant of the League of Nations, we see some clues in the language. Right. So the protocol of peace is, is this agreement this 50-50 sort of idea between the employer and the employee. Right. So he, Brandeis, described the protocol system as a large step toward industrial democracy, but of course <laughs> only a step. There he is quoting, in his quote, stating the two words industrial democracy. That gets important later. Okay. Because, you know, that well, this is the Fabian, Sidney Webb wrote industrial democracy in 1902. Mm -hmm. Lippmann's hanging out at the House of Truth. Lippmann, Brandeis is hanging out at the House of Truth with Lippmann, who is a, a Fabian Society member. Same with Harold Lasky. They're both Fabian Society members. So we can see that, you know, they're all collaborating here. So eventually came the Protocol of Peace, a revolutionary new industry-wide labor standard, bringing together Valentine's industrial relations with Taylor's principles of scientific management, forming Sidney Webb's industrial democracy. It was a long-anticipated partnership between capital and labor, a sort of syndicalism of shared responsibility and shared compensation. The labor unions and their leaders were looked at as the scientific entering wedge between man and his own labor. New York City was the proving ground, and the Lower East Side became their laboratory. It was in many ways the domestication of the human being. So yeah. this is the, you know, New York, because of the, the, the triangle shirt fire, have you heard of that? I've heard of it. Can you go okay, can so you elaborate? The manufacturers um, locked all of the doors of a high rise in New York where it was a, they were, they were making garments and it was largely a women's uh, made up of women workers. And the owners had locked the doors because the, the workers were going out and taking little micro breaks and having cigarettes or, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so they locked the doors and a fire started and burnt the, the whole place. And the women were caught in there and they jumped to their death. Jesus. This happened right in New York, just the same as 9-11. Mm -hmm. So it's really just, it's known in history as one of the most horrific 
uh, labor chapters in American Jeez. history, the Triangle Shirt Fire, Shirt Shirtwaist Fire. Mm. You know, but it's like the Ludlow Massacre. It's obscured. These are right. things that they would rather you not know. So when the Protocol of Peace was signed on September 2nd, 1910, it ushered in a new era of industrial labor relations. That's from the American Jewish Archives on a story that they were doing on the Protocol of Peace. So they recognize the importance, as do we. And the spark for this new industrial relations system came from the workers themselves. The strikes in the industry set the stage and organized both workers and owners into powerful groups necessary for an industry-wide agreement. Industrial Democrats used this canvas as provided by workers to paint a new picture. Men and women such as Louis Brandeis, Robert Wagner, Francis Perkins, George Price, Henry Julius Cohen, Bell Muskowitz, John Dyke, and others marshaled the power of social science and used their influence to broker deals to gain a seat at the industrial relations table. Wow. And was there a name there you recognize? Yeah, Robert Wagner stood out to me. I don't remember why, but I think either we've talked about him or someone else has talked about him I don't, with me. The only Robert Wagner I know is a Hollywood actor from the 70s and 80s. That, <laughs> that might have be the Robert reason. Wagner I'm thinking. <laughs> and, you know, Robert <laughs> Wagner involved in his own conspiracy with the death of that female actress. Oh, shit. <laughs> off the coast of L.A. with Natalie Wood with uh, what's the... Oh, my God. The, oh, the What's his name? Christopher uh, uh, Walken. Walken. Yeah. So anyway, we bring yeah. it all the way around. this won't be the same Robert Wagner, of course. Right. That's the only one I know. So we've provided here the best primary sources we can. You know, these are actual letters being sent between everybody, showing that there's major communication going on mm-hmm. between Brandeis, Taylor, Taylor Brandeis, Taylor and Gant, Gant and everybody else. This is a a collective concerted effort by this group to instill scientific management. They all will benefit large from this, right? Mm -hmm. So the Gantt, the Gantt chart for those that don't know is, is the chart that's used today in every single construction site you ever walk onto. And it it breaks down all of the sub trades and puts it all into a time uh, aspect in which uh, things flow more efficiently and you can have trades come in at the right times. And so all of this, the slide rule, the compound slide rule, all of these things, oh the motion God. studies combined with the time studies, this is all mm. very relevant to today. Yeah. So if anybody's wondering like, who are those ominous people, the, they that have put every little thing into boxes quote unquote like that's literally these people like it's not a euphemism it's literal it's it happened (laughs) we've been uh just everything's been turned into a one or a zero i mean it's unreal how they've just yeah well this is really the beginnings of the singularity ai all of it it's just the first rudimentary steps like uh, Isaiah Bowman's uh, three expeditions to South America were the, the rudimentary steps of surveillance and the, mm-hmm. they needed to map the entire world. So right. He, he maps everything south of the Rio Grande, all of South America and Central America, him and members of the inquiry map by foot 
and you know become part of a larger uh millionth map of the world project that's mm -hmm. directly coming out of the same milieu the same coterie the same this international uh conspiracy right so we're getting close to the end and so i start to make some conclusions Okay. Industrial democracy provides an important lens through which to view IR, industrial relations, during the progressive era. Industrial democracy was one of the handful of ideas that defined progressive era reformers. It signaled a new scientific approach to labor in America, as well as a fundamental recommitment to democratic principles. So one of the common characteristics of progressive era reformers is industrial democracy they all want this industrial industrialized democracy started by first industrial or democratizing labor mm -hmm. by democratizing the shop floor and then right. that turns from the shop into all the factories in america and then around the world so the protocol of peace fashioned by brandeis to settle the second strike and that's the cloakmaker strike of 1912 they're speaking of was a unique and revolutionary institution. So they're creating institutions and they're admitting it. It, it gave workers collective bargaining and brought about improved conditions, better wages and hours, safer and cleaner working workplaces and a host of other important reforms. And sure, all of those things happen just like they do today. They'll, they'll provide enough for you to believe in what they're doing, but we can clearly see a hundred years later, you know, where we're at. So mm -hmm. we can either blame Brandeis or say that he tried to set it up in the way that we would really like, and somehow it got co-opted and switched, <laughs> but. Yeah, I don't know. His ties early on that we went over in the last episode yep. kind of uh, debunk the yeah. latter explanation. Yes. The former is much more, uh, you know, the fact that this is all just tied in and we can just continuously go further and further yep. back in time to see more primitive, more simple roots to whatever this plan is, has become over yep. the past couple hundred years. And honestly, those kinds of viewpoints only come from somebody that hasn't looked deeply enough into it and doesn't understand who Brandeis was as, right. a, as a man. So exactly. The cloakmaker strike of 1910, to use Samuel Gomper's apt phrase, and Samuel Gomper was the head of the AFL during this time, American Federation of Labor. Mm -hmm. uh, so the cloakmaker strike of 1910 was more than a strike. It was an industrial revolution because it created a new system of IR, finishing what started in 1909. That would be the, sh the triangle shirtwaist fire. The right. signing of the protocol as the contract that ended the strike was called, as historian Louis Levine has noted, ushered in a new period of constructive experimentation in collective bargaining. This is where we get collective bargaining from. Benjamin wow. Stolberg, another earlier historian of the union, believed that the protocol of peace marked a decisive turning point in part because its basic idea was later copied by the other needle trades and in time, its influence spread throughout American industry. So there we are, just confirming what we're saying. And this is generally just the, the consensus. That Brandeis is the one that's, that's there creating the protocol of peace. This becomes the answer to bring workers and employees together, enough at least to get them into the factory and, and all of that. So mm -hmm. here we talk. Yeah, make about them the fight for it. 
Yeah. The Haymarket Affair of 1886, the Homestead Strike of 1892, the Uprising of 20,000 of 1909, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911, the Cloakmaker Strike of 1910, the 1913 Phelps Dodge Mining Explosion, which I mentioned earlier, the 1914 mm -hmm. Ludlow Massacre, which we mentioned, were just some among many high-profile labor wars that erupted out of the Industrial Revolution and all served as a catalyst for radical reform of industry relations. Now, they are all part of the Great Revolt in the U.S. This is what it's called. It coincided Ooh. with the Great Unrest in Britain and the Great Labor Revolt in Canada. My God. Jesus, it's like the new normal. <laughs> yep. It's all you happening. See that it's coordinated it's it's around the world. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, a problem-reaction-solution. Yeah. And so this also emphasizes what we say about the principles of scientific management in that it immediately gets translated into nearly every language on earth. And Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Mao, you know, Mao, a former Yale graduate, by the way, mm -hmm. they are using the technology found in the scientific management and they are imposing it on their own populations. Wow. You can see it there, especially in the West, right? And it all mm -hmm. coincides because no matter what country you're in there in the West, they are trying to impose control over you, take you away from, you know, the farmland and, and, you know, uh, being your own authority, Bingo. Right? embracing your own individuality. The idea of being your own expert is the most laughed at thing, especially right. over the past few years, right? And I can see why, because, and I, shit, I just put out an episode a couple, couple days ago about the non-questioning, no discernment insanity that floats through the quote-unquote truth community. I, I get it. Yep. I do think that there's an angle there that needs to be talked about, but the yep. idea that we cannot become the the expert of our own lives. We cannot become this trivium-based yeah. yeah. expert is bullshit. It's, yeah. you know, the, the people that run off with wild beliefs are not a good example. That is more right. of an example of the de deprivation of this uh, education that, you know, that has been yeah. lorded over us uh, instead of given to us. And I will say that that is why we do what we do. Damn right. We want to be a source for people that say, I've had enough of this bullshit. I can't, I don't know who to believe. I can't prove any of this. None of it is beneficial to me in my own personal life. Well, they come here and they start to see how it actually was put together. They can see through our investigation that these things really did happen. Like you mentioned about 10 minutes ago that, you know, the new world order is not a conspiracy theory. This is no. how it went down. And we are only in part two and we're going to further get into this and it's going to reach, you know, levels that are just going to blow you away. And so when we talk about the social contract, this is really one of the, the major ones, right? Mm -hmm. Was to put us, to make us all employers of the factory owners. So and defenders of it and patriots yeah, towards yeah. it, you know? Yeah. So as you could imagine, workers revolted at the idea of such control measures we find normal today. They saw no advantage to their being managed scientifically. Right. They saw only so in new. the scheme 
what we witness is undeniably true today, that the worker was never meant to share in either profit or leisure. The manufactory exploited the human being to its own advantage. And today we bear witness to a system ridding itself of labor entirely, mm -hmm. as was the plan from the beginning. Brandeis helped force into reality an entirely new promise of American life. The progressive plan pushed through, sparing no expense, the breaking of the American spirit in the name of efficiency and preparedness. So Herbert Crowley, one of the founders of the progressive movement, he writes the manifesto that all progressives follow. And what's the title? Promise of American Life. Hmm. And in it, he um, supports Roosevelt, the Bull Moose Party, but more specifically, he wants a large monolithic government, a welfare state, essentially, uh, of which the society is governed by the scientific expert. And so all of these guys that write this, the books with new at the beginning, you go and read these books and these guys are all progressives, uh, members of the House of Truth set. And it's in each book, whether it's the new democracy, the new freedom, the new nationalism, the new spirit, it's all the same message. Large yeah. government with a scientific expert to govern society. This well, is we got our footnotes there for this episode. There's 18 there. I've got a screenshot uh, that everybody. There's some that say citation needed. Now this is how open and and sort of live we are. I have yeah. those somewhere. I just couldn't find them in time for broadcast. So I, I'm going to with you and tell you right there that I don't have them at the moment. But if you want them, I'll find them because I got them in my my uh, file system. So going forward, if you want. Um, you know, if you have that on file that you could easily send to me, I can put that list of footnotes in the show notes from week to week if you'd uh -huh. like. It's up to you. That's just you know, anything you'd like to add. We can yeah. do that with. Um, that was really excellent. The, the first episode, we kind of laid the groundwork. This digging in a little bit further. This is really right. well written, Dwayne. I really appreciate that... how well thought out it all was. Okay. So is it making sense to you? Is it like. Yeah, it is. Yeah. At first. In the... in a responsible way that you can kind of start to build what yeah right i okay. think this is going to be episodes that i'll listen back to and you know obviously revisit your articles on this topic mm -hmm. with eyes and ears that kind of grasp it and understand it a little bit more um because some of yeah at first i'm like all right it's it, you always not you, but me, a, a lot of people forget that age old tactic that they're so famous for, which is um, kind of co-opting good things, you know? Yeah. So when you start seeing good things happening, you're like, well, wait, what's this guy talking about? How is this a bad thing? You really have to take a step back and remember how these people yeah. operate. And it's always using goodness as a shield. And it's been going on forever. And, you know, I can't help the way you wrapped it all up on this. The second mm -hmm. part of the article, it's like not pointing any fingers, but just the the idea itself is so constant throughout history, whether we're talking about mythology and stories of gods or we're talking about human control over an AI workforce we're talking about the um, the doing away of personal responsibility, the lack of mm -hmm. working and getting mm -hmm. someone else to do the job for yes. them. Now, for a long time, we were that other thing to do the job for 
a them, you know, and now we may not be that important, at least in that level anymore. We're no longer needed to be the workforce, the, the work we're, we, we as the workforce over the last hundred years has slowly helped them create this machine that will be their next workforce in a way yeah. where that leaves us as valued carbon is a different fucking story. Um, Not to be too doom and gloom about it, but that's kind of part of what I'm getting out of it. But no matter what period of time you look at, what story you look at, what perception it is, it's always about uh, obfuscating responsibility to something else, whoever the fuck they are. So So whenever that's an important one. Yes, very important. So just remember, whenever you're removed from source, Mm-hmm. you are Again, yes. most likely being intentionally moved away from source right and we see that mm-hmm. in everything and now uh one thing about this expert and what Lippman talked about the uh intelligence bureaus and and brandeis creates it through the administrative state and this expert i just want to close maybe with this it you know the what you were talking about how we we're dependent on the expert nowadays so so much that it's in nearly every headline what that does when we and this is really what people talk about when when they say blissful ignorance this is what they mean i'm going to i'm going to rely on the expert to tell me the right thing to do well you have to also accept in that agreement that you make with yourself a a degree of vulnerability directly uh, proportionate to how much you really trust that government or that authority because it's in that gray area of vulnerability that they take advantage of us. And that is one of the patterns, one of the most important patterns to recognize that throughout history, and you can see it easily today. Yes, that was very well said. And that is, yeah, it's the, uh, well, as they call it often, right? The expert is the entering wedge yeah. and it really is. And it, it, it's a good way to, to describe it. And, and I think that's, words. yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, that's how, again, how these characters are all connected, you know, from government to cybernetics, it's all yeah. one locomotion. Yeah. Um, that was a great way to end it. Unless you have cool. anything else, man, that was excellent. This has been a great part too. Um, yeah. really looking forward to the next one. Um, yeah, we're keeping them pretty concise too. And that, yeah. that is out of, out of, consideration of the viewer reader listener and us we want to try to prove too that you know we're going to create content that is fairly easy to consume and quick and that's why i broke it up into 10 parts and we go over uh each one and you know literally i am now reading things to people which is okay because it it keeps it concise yeah and i honestly think there's no harm in it i think there's there's value in that you know especially Well, from many different angles, even the fact that most authors now will read their own work for the audiobooks, the yeah. fact that you're yep. dictating this with me um, to others, I think that's important because yeah. you can put your inflection into things that others may not when they're reading through it. And that's an important part of it. You know, yeah. the sidetracks or the little tangents we've gone on are kind of purposeful and meaningful in that way. Yeah, so. it keeps us focused, it helps yeah, us absolutely. going off on tangents. Right. And- and yeah uh, <laughs> make time. it linear and you know as easy to understand as as we can so i appreciate everybody that's still sticking with us if there is anybody 
And I look forward to providing part three for you guys next Monday night. I'm really looking forward to it. Hell yeah. And I believe we'll have our buddy Andy Gerard with us yeah. next week. Um, hopefully if he's just yep. tuning in next week, so be it. Yep. Um, but yeah, please everybody spread the word. Um, you know, the next seven weeks, we're going to be doing this again. And uh, this episode, if you didn't miss it, don't worry, you'll, it'll be out on the feed soon. Um, I'll have it up on YouTube probably tomorrow or the next day. If it's, okay. yeah, it should be saved on there anyway. But I don't know how live works yet entirely. Yeah. You know, it's still, well, we're, just, we're just playing with it. But I'm glad yeah. that we decided to do it for this series, you know. Yeah. And um, all right, everybody. Well, Dwayne, again, thank, thank you, you so much for being yeah, here. Thank you. And everybody watching and listening, appreciate you. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you later. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, cactus carrier. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you meddle with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? I mean, <laughs> <laughs>